listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Um, If I haven't met you just yet, my name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Montrose. It's my joy to welcome you to our congregation this morning. And just to remind you what Cole invited us into at the very beginning of the gathering, uh, we would love to get to know you. If you're new or if you've been coming around for a little while, we'd love to invite you into our community. And the best way really to do that is just after the gathering, we have a map in this hallway. We'd love to meet you there and invite you into our community and kind of show you what we're doing during the week, even though we're gathering just like this every Sunday. So uh, if you're new and you're interested in connecting, uh, meet me over there, I ask you. Um, And and as you just kind of heard Miss Linda unpack, we've we've been walking through uh, Paul's letter to his first letter to the Thessalonians, this young church plant in this Greek city, part of the Roman Empire um, called Thessalonica. It's it's one of Paul's... uh, Arguably, it's his first letter that he wrote. It's his first epistle that he wrote. Uh, He co-wrote it with some other leaders. And they have been encouraging this church and being reminding them that they've been encouraged by this church. And um, so they're writing in order to remind them kind of what the Lord has done and is doing through them. And, uh, And really this encouragement that, hey, like the because of your faithfulness and what you believe about Jesus and what he's done, um, the gospel has spread throughout this region, this region called Macedonia. Um, so that, that really explains the first three chapters of the letter. But, but in chapter four last week, we saw that Paul kind of moves from encouragement to instruction. And he comes out the gate swinging, as Miss Linda said, and he, he talks to them about, um, about sex. And, and really what he's doing is he's, he is... Uh, talking to them about these specific categories in the Christian life that were really impactful to their surrounding culture in the way that Christians were different from those who surrounded them. Um, And he talks to them about living in a way that pleases God more and more and more. So last week we saw that sex was one of these categories. And this week we look at public life, particularly um, work and and just living in the culture, just how we go about our day in the culture as Christians. And then next week, we will, we will move on to the next chapter, but, or really finish up chapter four and move on to chapter five, where Paul is instructing them about Christians and our beliefs surrounding death and hope. So that's where we're heading. Um, and the reason for the shift is kind of what I said, like Greece, it, as part of the Roman Empire, um, in these three categories, like sexual intimacy and work and daily life and death, were called to be set apart in a way that was compelling, convicting to the culture around them, and ultimately preached the gospel. Um, and so Christians were called to be very different. Uh, last week, I, I said this quote. Uh, it's a paraphrase of a historian, but Romans were called to share their, uh, really not called, but the Roman culture was this. They shared their beds with everybody and their table with no one, and they feared death. But the, the Christian culture was to be opposite, to share your bed with no one. Don't be liberal with your with your intimacy, but share your table with everybody and don't have fear of death, but have hope in what the Lord will do at the end of all things. So today we focus on that middle section, work, life, generosity, quietness. Let's pray as we uh, talk about this text together this morning. Lord, would you, um, in word that seems difficult or, or even this morning seems particularly moral, um, would you show us, illuminate 
to us in your scripture that we are called to have faith in you, to receive your love. And out of that place, Lord, would we remember that we are to love? Would we remember that we are to live in humility and that our lives would would preach the gospel, not in a way that we'd never have to speak, but in a way that we, um, we can back up your glorious words with fruit in our life. Um, yeah, Lord, I pray that as we might feel convicted this morning, I know I have kind of felt convicted this week even, that we would, um, that we would rest in the finished work of Jesus and out of that place, um, Lord, would we follow you to, where, to wherever you might call us in all aspects of our lives, dying to ourselves and rising just like you have done for us. So I pray that your word would be real to us in a, in a particular way this morning and that this week we would, um, we would live into the flourishing wholeness that you have called us to as believers. We love you. We trust you and pray this in your name. Amen. Um, I want to begin with a quote from a famous uh, American theologian named Francis Schaeffer. The quote is this, um, through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats. They've hung hung chains about their necks, even at times had special haircuts. But, But this is a much better sign. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back. What is he talking about? Well, Jesus gives us this quote in John 13. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Um, This is what this is about in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is instructing them on how to love one another, how to grow in brotherly love. And, and we're concerned about this because if you study other books of the Bible, like the letter of James, you'll see that a central theme of this letter is true faith, actual faith in Christ, faith that saves, but faith that displays itself by changing us. True faith displays itself by good works. And, and Jesus is saying here, and Francis Schaeffer is picking up on it, that the main thing, that will mark our real faith is love. The main thing that will mark true faith is love, brotherly love, love for one another. So when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he's simply reminding them of this fact, encouraging them to grow in brotherly love. But more than that, he's going to show them how they specifically, and we can learn a lot from this, should grow in brotherly love as they seek Uh, to be good citizens of Thessalonica. Let's read again in verse nine and see this together. It says this, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. So again, we have this wonderful encouragement. First, he reminds them of this truth of the Holy Spirit, right? That God is the one who taught them to love one another. So he says, Um, in kind of Pauline fashion. I don't need to teach you about this. I don't need to teach you that you should love one another, but let me teach you a little bit (laughs) about how to love one another. But but what he's saying here is, is something that has been promised and taught for hundreds of years about those people of God. In Jeremiah 31, 33, it says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with my people after those days of exile, declares uh, declares the Lord. I will put the law within them I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So Paul is reminding them of this this 
prophecy and this fact that since Christ has ascended, the Holy Spirit has descended on those believers and written the law in their hearts. The law is written on the hearts of those of us in the room who believe in the Lord. And what is that law? What is the law? Well, uh, Jesus summarizes it as such, to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our brother. So this is, this is the law that the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, has written on the hearts of all believers. First, that we would love God, and second, that that love of God would display itself in the fact that we love one another. So Paul says, well, I don't really have to teach you this because the Holy Spirit within you is constantly teaching you to love the Lord more and more and more and to display that love to one another in brotherly love as we love one another in the community. And then he says, um, I know that you guys are doing a, a fantastic job of this because the gospel has spread in all of Macedonia. In fact, I'm hearing reports, Paul is saying, of, of the way that you're loving each other throughout the whole region. And then it, it gets interesting. He says, do this more and more. And he gives, um, the way this is constructed as a sentence is that he's giving these next three areas as examples of ways that they should grow in their brotherly love. So he spent an extended time on intimacy in chapter four, but now at the beginning, but now he's saying, okay, grow in brotherly love. Here's three ways that your life should display this brotherly love. Um, verse 11, we urge you brothers to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands so that you may work properly, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on nobody. So aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs and work with your hands. What is happening here? Is he calling us to live as the Amish, to, to go uh, disassociate from society, to work literally with our hands and make things with our hands um, and just to mind what's going on with us? It, I think the Amish, not to, I'm not trying to call out the Amish for getting this wrong. I think there's some beautiful application, but it's, there's missing some context. So let's look at these three together. Um, first, love each other by living quietly. What does it mean to aspire to live quietly? Another word for aspire here that might be better is to strive to live quietly. And when we think about, this is a juxtaposition moment, right? Like strive, work really hard, pursue with all of your ability to live quietly. Um, he's calling them to strive not for fame or wealth or building a following or a platform, but to strive instead to be quiet. This is not Paul saying to stop speaking. It's not literal instruction, but instead it's an instruction to have a life not driven by loud ambition, loud platforming, a vocal presence in the public square, but instead to lower oneself and one's family, and the, as the church, as a, as a corporate gathering of believers, to be lowered in humility, in peaceful living, in, uh, in a restful way of living that was counter, it was opposed to the Roman culture. The ambition and loudness of the ancient world has not changed much in 2,000 years, I'm, I'm sorry to say. We are still ambitious. We still strive. Like, and this is one of the things that's been convicting for me this week. Like, I often strive to be heard, if I'm honest. Like, I, I strive to be heard. My goal when I'm selfish is to say things that people will think matter, that please people, um, whether that's right here or it's on like social media or, or anything like that. And I recognize 
that, that part of that is this desire not to please God, but to, to be loud, to be heard. But Paul says that's not the call of brotherly love. Instead, he says to live quietly, to live in the rest that is offered by Christ. So how should we walk in this tension? Because I do think it's a tension. We have to share, we have to live in a way that's loud enough that we're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, but, but also we're told to be quiet, to live quietly. How do we share the good things of God? How do we take stands against evil and injustice that require us to have a voice? Well, remember that this instruction is not divorced from the beginning of chapter four. At the beginning of chapter four, Paul says this, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. So to connect this verse with the instruction here, we are to grow in brotherly love. How? One way is to live a quiet life. Why? With the purpose of pleasing God with the purpose of pleasing God. So God's pleasure motivates us and God's pleasure informs our quiet living. This means that as we're ambitious in our pursuit of quiet, we are slow, we have margin, we are prayerful, we spend time with the Lord, we spend time with one another. We don't seek to build our own platforms or our own kingdom. We don't seek our own glory. We don't seek our own fame, but instead we do everything for the Lord's pleasure. We do everything for the pleasure of God. So when the Holy Spirit who's within us, who's writing the law on our hearts, compels us to speak up, we do so not for our own kingdom. We do so for God's pleasure. We do so for God's pleasure. So we strive to live quietly, unlike the culture surrounding us who always tempts us to explode with outrage, right? Like we, this, is, this is our cultural moment. And I, I want us to see that it's not that different than the Roman culture of 2000 years ago who were constantly arguing in the square, shouting in the public square about what should concern Roman citizens. Paul calls us not to take the bait. He doesn't call us to not stand up for injustice. He doesn't call us to not proclaim the gospel. He says, don't take the outrage bait that the Roman culture, that the American culture is offering us. So we strive to live in opposition to the loudness by pursuing quiet. And second, he says this, and this is a continuation of this thought, mind your own affairs. Christians, mind your own affairs. This is a continuation, like I said, to live quietly, but there are some specifics. First, it's this call to holiness, and more specifically, for the Christian to be set apart, to be concerned with one another's morality, with morality in the church, with how we're following Jesus within the church, but not to impose that morality on those outside the church. He says, no, mind your affairs. Don't mind their affairs. Mind your affairs. And really, this is part of this appeal that as Christians, we will live lives that are compelling and captivating and intriguing and, and that lives that proclaim the gospel to those around us who are not part of the church. And as new Christians come into the community, we're called to teach them teach the new Christians what it means to follow Jesus and, and to mind the affairs, not of the culture, but of the church, to mind our affairs, how to love one another, how to walk in holiness. And second, this is going to link it to the work with your hands teaching. Paul is calling them, uh, he's using the word affairs in a way that's, that's meant to teach them about how to not be consumed with the affairs of the culture that surrounds them. Um, 
Stick with me here a moment. In Thessalonica and in Rome, in the government sphere, voting decisions were made in this, in this realm of politics, right? Voting decisions were led by powerful, rich, and corrupt men. And so to participate, you had to put a lot of money behind these corrupt individuals who got a vote in the public square. And, uh, and we have evidence that in early Rome, um, specifically here in Thessalonica, that Christians were involved in this practice, that they were saying to each other, teaching to each other, oh, we need to put money behind these men so we get Christian morality into the public square. But Paul is actually calling them to step back from the system. Let's be clear, they're not being called to abandon the care of their city or the welfare of the city of the citizens. Elsewhere, Paul is reminding us that we're called to love and care for the sick and marginalized. So he's not, he's not Uh, denying that teaching here, but instead he's calling these Christians to not be consumed by the political affairs of Thessalonica. He's calling them not to be consumed by the particularly high financial costs that it would take to be able to be a participant in the government structure. He's instead saying, be generous with one another. Leave behind the corruption and status and vocation associated with the public affairs of the city. And so this is a different context, but it's certainly applicable. Um, The values are certainly applicable to our context, but one difference is to participate in our government, which I think is beautiful, we don't have to have a certain amount of money or status or power or privilege. You just have to be a citizen, and then you're invited to participate. So one way that we seek the welfare of the city, that we seek to be good citizens, we get to participate freely, regardless of our station in the government structure. We get to vote. Um... However, would it be fair to say that our system of government (laughs) is led by powerful, wealthy, and corrupt individuals? Often, I don't think that's a leap to say that because it doesn't take long to look and see that there is corruption in the lobbying system. There is money. There is loudness in the public sphere. We are tempted to be outraged at what what our government is consumed with. And so, Because of these things, because of the loudness of the political sphere in America, we're tempted to not only participate in ways that are much more consuming than we might be called to in Scripture, we're tempted to idolize it. We're tempted to idolize political involvement and movement in a way that places our faith in the government system instead of in Christ and his church. We're tempted to believe that the government will bring salvation, that the government will bring hope will deliver on the promises that it's been making for 2,000 years, which is this is the system which will bring utopia. How long will we wait until that happens? I'm here to tell you, my belief is that through a human government, it will never happen. But God's intention was always for, I'm off note here, God's intention was always for the earth to be ruled by a man so much so that he became one. You get that? (laughs) He became Jesus to rule the earth through a human system of government that is perfect. Okay, so where am I? Uh, Oh, okay. This is not what Paul had in mind. Great, we're on track. Christians are called to care, to be good citizens, to seek the welfare of our city, to care for the poor, to care for the oppressed, to care for the marginalized, to to care for the orphan and the widow. But in the pursuit of those good things that Paul calls us to, we are not to be consumed by the public square. 
We're not to be consumed by the governmental structure. We're not to place our ultimate hope in these systems. We should participate to an extent that Paul has called us to, that God has called us to. We are to do what we do with living quiet lives, right? To participate in a way that is pleasing to God. And so Paul says, mind your affairs, not the public's affairs, mind your affairs. Seek to care for those in the church and in your context, your neighbors. Paul gives those with, um, and so again, a reminder, like there are Christians in Thessalonica that would be reading this letter that would be akin to senators or um, you know, high wealthy political participants. And he gives them a really radical different idea of what they can do with their lives. He says this next, work with your hands instead. The third mark of growing in brotherly love, that they would work with their hands. It is what it sounds like. He tells them, you should consider instead of high political ambition, which makes you your voice heard and your, uh, it fills your pockets with more money and more fame and more prestige in the political system. Instead, maybe you should consider manual labor. He's not being, he's not being uh, down on manual labor. The Greeks and the Romans believed that manual labor was very, uh, very un, um, unworthy. It's for unskilled slaves or the extremely poor. But here Paul is elevating the hardest echelon of labor, the lowest class of citizen as a model for hard work and human flourishing. He is saying this, in denying power, in denying influence, in denying platform, in denying political involvement, in denying money, it would be better for your soul to work with your hands, as Jesus did, to work with your hands. We, we have, uh, I have, we have a warped view of vocation. America, America feeds this, the West feeds this, but it's not new. This was true in Thessalonica as well. And it's simply, it's simply marked by we identify each other by what we do, right? We, 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 are, we are who we, what we do in America. But, but this verse is saying the opposite. He doesn't say what you do doesn't matter. Instead, he's saying even if you do the most culturally mundane work, whatever that is in your context, if you clean or work construction or work with your hands, work in a way that's pleasing to God, usefully contribute to society and the city in a way that's not loud or concerned with platform or a, a vocal uh, participant or, or, or in a way that's not tied to corruption. Instead, don't be shaped by your culture, which is going to tempt you to achieve more and more and more and never stop feeding the achievement beast. And instead, be shaped by brotherly love. Work to bless others. Work to serve others. Work to fund ministry. Work to grow in generosity. Work because God created work. Work to please God. In all three Paul has God's pleasure in mind. And if we have God's pleasure in mind in these three spheres, then we will get brotherly love. And here's what's beautiful about working to please God. If you work to please God, you will never overwork because God's pleasure is our rest. He mandates that we take a day of rest. He mandates that we take a Sabbath. Why? For us, Jesus is clear. The Sabbath is made for you. It's made as a blessing for you. So if you're working to please God, you won't be tempted to overwork. And likewise, if you're working to please God, you won't be tempted to underwork. Because if we're working to please God, we will do our best and we will work with honor, not so we can make more money or get more platform or more prestige or more of a voice in the public square, but instead that God would be pleased as we work unto him. 
So far from belittling manual labor, Paul is elevating all labor when it's for God's pleasure. Whatever you do is so worthy of your time because you're working for the pleasure of God, not the pleasure of man and not for your own status. So these are the three areas where we are told to grow in brotherly love, that we would have aspiration as we strive for living quietly, for minding our own affairs, for working well. In those ways, Paul says we should walk properly before the outsider and be dependent on no one. And being dependent on no one here doesn't mean that we don't lean on each other in the church financially or emotionally as we have needs. The New Testament and Jesus are very clear, right? Like we should care for each other. We should care for each other. So the thought here is that we should be a community that meets one another's needs so that we don't have to look outside of our community to be dependent on others. This is a call to steady, sober, and useful living that God gives, uh, gives us a picture of Christian living that would not only be compelling, that would not only be good for us, but it would be intriguing and captivating to the unbeliever as well. This type of living seeks the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah puts it in prophecy of chapter 29. As we pursue God's pleasure, we pursue the city's flourishing. As we, as we seek God's pleasure, we will ultimately deny ourselves, deny our own, our own personal gain, deny our own platforms, deny our own ambition in a way that elevates all. And living and working in this way would be far from, uh, the, the picture that Paul has in mind is far from isolation, as we talked about a little earlier. In fact, it's a bridge building tool. He says, living and working in this way builds a bridge to the outside world from the Christian world. What kind of world will they see? One marked by brotherly love, affection, hope, purity, quiet living, mutual care, and rest that we have been given in Christ, or will they see a frantic loud, lazy, greedy, spiteful, and jealous community, a power-hungry community. Here's one way I'm considering it this, this week. Um, the American dream for American Christians is not sustainable. It's, it's not sustainable. It's a double-minded way of living. James calls this in James chapter 1, having a split soul to have Christ and have the world. And what, what we mean by this is it's really hard to follow Jesus in a way that's selfless and sacrificial and, and, and a response to the calls of, of our real faith, of God's love for us in a way that loves one another. It's really hard to do all those things and pursue all the comforts of modern living. James says in chapter one, count it joy when our faith is tested through suffering to be steadfast, to have faith, to pray, to not be tossed around like ocean, uh, like a ship on the ocean. And he says, for those who have a split soul, whose souls are split between the desires of Christian living and the desires of the comforts of the modern world, he calls that unstable. This is the call here in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's part of this New Testament call and really it's centered on wholeness. Like it talks about holiness. It talks about being set apart, being pure, being concerned with love for one another. But what Paul is doing is painting a picture of what it means to be whole. So what we talked a lot about last night, that, that a, a pure view of intimacy gives you your body and soul honor. This is, what, this is a continuation of this thought, that wholeness in every aspect of our lives, in our work, in our hope, when it comes to death, in our relationships, all those things will be a reflection of our firm foundation, Christ himself. 
So how do we achieve this? As we, as we wrap up this morning, here is the reminder. This, this countercultural way of living and working and flourishing and wholeness can only come from the ultimate source of brotherly love brought by the Holy Spirit that flows from Christ. When we surrender ourselves to Jesus, his humility, his quiet spirit become ours. His kingship is the political power that makes all other political striving and idolatry melt away. His work in righteousness is counted to us as righteousness and purity, and his death was done in, as a cover of our failings. And as his resurrection promises, we will resurrect the completion of our wholeness as our body and soul are united at the end of all things and the beginning of everything. When Jerusalem descends on the earth and the new heavens and the new earth, we are among our king in a body and soul, Christ, and we emulate him in a resurrected body and soul. Jesus is the first whole one, therefore. His resurrected body and spirit have been joined, so he rules now on a throne in a complete body. He is the first whole one of creation. And it's, it's through our acceptance of his brotherly love that we are enabled and desired to grow in brotherly love, and it's in this acceptance that we are promised that we will be whole ones like him. That there is a time coming right now, Christian in the room, your spirit has raised, but your body has not but there's a time coming where we, like our king before us, will be whole. So what is the symbol of Christianity? How will they know us? How will the world be compelled by this God? Will they, they will witness the change that flows from faith in Christ. They will see what we tell them is true, that Jesus changes everything. There's no more striving for world fame. There's no more platforming or political power that we pursue or the better paying job even. Instead, we rest in the finished work of the whole one, Christ, and live with humility and into our wholeness that is coming. So as we come to the table, we remember brotherly love and, and we remember Jesus. We remember his sacrifice that he said, is the best display of love. This is love for one another, that you, that you would lay down your life for your friends, that he would lay down his life and his body and his blood for those he calls brother and sister. And that truth settles deep in our hearts. And as it does, Francis Schaeffer said, how will they know that we are from Jesus? How will they know that he has sent us? The symbol is this, not a cross, not an anchor, not a fish on a car, but instead it will be our love. Let's pray.